Welcome to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. Pastor Andy Oliver is our Bible teacher and expositor. Today's message is the merciful faithfulness of God in Nehemiah 9. Please take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Last week we dealt with, in part, the faithfulness of God in spite of man's unfaithfulness. We look at, continue that, that theme as we look at the longest prayer that is recorded in the, the Scripture here in Nehemiah chapter 9. A confession of Israel's past sins. From time to time I do wedding ceremonies. And the vows of the the marriage ceremony I perform include the following words. Forsaking all others, keep you only unto him or her, as the case may be, so long as you both shall live. And yet we all know too well, too often, that faithfulness to such vows is ignored as often or sometimes even more often than they are kept. Keeping our word, as we looked at last time, is is difficult enough with changing circumstances. The wickedness of the human heart seems to drive us to lie and cheat and to steal. Fidelity is a noble ideal that is held up as a, as a great thing. But fallen human conditions finds it to be indeed a rare commodity. The book of Romans cites a a whole host of Old Testament passages and describes the the true character of of the human condition. Beginning in chapter 3 of Romans, starting in verse 10, down through verse 17, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That, folks, is the assessment of the human condition. And as we read through our Old Testament, We find many themes and ideas, but I believe that these two are the dominant ideas that we see in your Old Testament, above all others. Number one, that man is wicked and unfaithful and deceitful. But God is holy, and preeminently that is the the dominant trait of God that we see. That God is gracious and merciful, and here's the thing that we're going to be focusing on today. God, regardless of, of us... God is always faithful. Our text in Nehemiah, in one chapter, encapsulates these very ideas, and we'll be looking at that again next week. In this ongoing survey of Old Testament history, we see the promise of God and the infidelity of man, and yet the faithfulness of God. Starting in verse 9 of Nehemiah chapter 9, it says, and did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard us their cry by the, by the Red Sea and showed them signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and on all his servants and on the people of his land. For thou knewest that they dealt proudly against them. So didst thou get thee a name as it is this day. 
God remembered his people in Israel. He had made a promise to Abraham. He had passed that promise and reiterated that to Isaac, and that had been passed on to Jacob, and then to the twelve. And Jacob and the twelve went down into Egypt, and they were there. They passed on, but their descendants were there all told for 430 years. And they had multiplied, and by the way, always mention this because, oh, that can't be possible. Sit down with a calculator. It's very easy to do. That you can go from 70 people to over a million in 400 years, really without any trouble whatsoever. And so they did. And during that period of time, instead of being the, the people that were revered and respected and honored when they first came, it says there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and they became enslaved. And they built cities and were kept in enslavement. Their firstborn were eventually slaughtered, but Moses was, was spared through the providence of God to be the leader that God would use to bring them out of the land of Egypt. There was the threat of annihilation as they uh, escaped from the Egyptians on the shores of the Red Sea. The the uh, the wrath of the Egyptians, they had let the Israelites go. And then they said, what have we done? We've let our slaves go. And they went back to retrieve them or, or wipe them out. And we see the signs and wonders as it mentions there in verse 10. Ten plagues on the gods and people of Egypt. One of the fascinating things is, is a study on the plagues of Egypt because each one of those plagues, you say, why did he send frogs? Why did he do this? Why did he do that? It's kind of, those are kind of odd. Some of them, yeah, boy, they, they let these people know, but some of them are kind of peculiar. I mean, if you were to think of a plague that you would bring on some people, especially in a desert country with a, with a river running through the middle of it, the idea of having billions of frogs overrunning the land and in your houses and everywhere else is not something that would probably come to the human mind. But there's a reason for these particular particular plagues because each one of those was a slap in the face of an Egyptian deity to show the powerlessness of Egyptian idolatry against the, the God who is, the only God who is, the God who does things, the God who will lead the children of Israel by the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, who will feed them with manna, who parts the Red Sea and sends the plagues on the Egyptians. We're dealing with a God who, who does things that is visible for all to see. And these plagues are not random chances because Moses would come in and say, tomorrow this is going to happen, and it happens. And you don't have, uh, you know, the forecasting capabilities we have today. It isn't just luck of the draw. I'll guarantee you, I'll guarantee you there has not been another plague of frogs like they had there. And it says that they had thunder and lightning and hail and so on there in the land. That does not happen in that place. God did that. God did an amazing work. And it was there for all to see. And the children of Israel worshipped the Lord and they were gracious in what God had, thankful for what God had done. And they saw the hand of God. It says in verse 11, Thou didst divide the sea before them, so they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. And their persecutors, thou threwest into the deeps as a stone into the mighty waters. After the Israelites had gone through and the Egyptians tried to follow them through those parted waters, God caused them to come back in and wiped out the Egyptian army. And the Israelites saw all that. It says in verse 12, Moreover, thou lettest them... In the day by the, the cloudy pillar, and in the night by the pillar of fire, to give them light in the way wherein they should go. 
It wasn't just there as a, as a, as a mark, but it moved and showed them the path that they should take. It was their guide in the wilderness. In verse 13, it says, Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai, and spakest with them from heaven, and gavest them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and made known unto them thy Sabbath, and commanded them precepts and statutes and laws by the hand of Moses the servants. They saw all these things. They heard all these things. And this was not just a one-time event and they could say, hey, remember when this happened? Because the pillar of cloud was there and the pillar of fire was there every day and every night for 40 years. Look at verse 15. And gave us them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst and promised them that they should go in and possess the land which he had sworn to give them. They are going through this desert land. Now, Next year, by the way, we're going to be promoting this. We have in the past uh, used Red Cliff, or not Red Cliff, Ironwood Camp in uh, in Newberry Springs, California. Anybody been to Newberry Springs? Anybody have a slightest idea where this is other than you've been told? This is uh, about 25 miles northeast of Barstow. Barstow is in the middle of the Mojave Desert. We go to camp in the Mojave Desert. If you've been to the Mojave Desert, if you've driven through there, that is an oasis, a a beautiful garden compared to the Sinai. If you've been to Death Valley, California, which is the the hottest, driest place in North America, and frankly, the, the hottest place on earth is Death Valley, California. It's hotter than the Sahara. It's hotter than any place in the Middle East. The amount of rainfall they get in Death Valley is the same amount of rainfall they get in the Sinai Peninsula. Averages five inches of rain or less per year. There are some places where it doesn't rain at all sometimes in a given year. And God had the children of Israel go through this place for 40 years with between a million and a half and three million people. And he fed them with manna. What kind of crops are they going to grow? There's nothing there. And where's the water going to come from? God supplied water. There were times when, when there was, they, he took them to a spring, or there was other places where he said, hit the rock with your staff, and water came shooting out of the cliffside. God supplied for the children of Israel, and enough to, to deal with that number of people. And so day by day, they saw the hand of God. They couldn't deny it. We were dealing with the supernatural on a daily basis. And we could think of the, the theme of the Old Testament is the power of God, the holiness of God as you, as you read through this. But I, I dare say that as you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, a key word that pops into your mind is the word complaining. They groused, they complained. Your King James said they murmured, <laughs> mumbling under their breath, complaining about what was going on. They were never satisfied, never content. And then when God does t- have them do what they had been complaining they wanted to do, they wouldn't do it. Never happy, never satisfied, never enough, never right, never according to what they want. And yet the pillar of cloud is there day by day. The pillar of fire is there every night. Every day except the Sabbath, they get up and there was manna to be had. There was water to drink. They never went without. 
It says their clothes and their shoes did not wear out in the 40 years of wilderness wandering. They had seen the plagues. They had walked through the, the, the parted Red Sea. They had feasted on the quail that God had sent them. Time and again, God did these various things, supplied for them. It was ne- God is always faithful. And the people were never satisfied. We look at our own lives and we see what God has done. God gives us life. God supplies. We have a roof over our head. We have cars to drive. We have medical attention we need. We get all these various things, but when it doesn't happen exactly the way we want, we grouse, we complain. And sometimes we become embittered with God because God didn't do it the way we wanted him to do it. God, I prayed and you and, and you didn't do it the way I told you. I gave you instructions on how to do this, Lord. I wanted it done this way. I mean, I told you what I wanted, but I told you how I wanted it done. And you knew what I was thinking. You knew. And instead, you did this. And we get angry with God. We get frustrated with God. We grow embittered with God. Because instead of God, he's our genie. That's our thinking. God, you didn't do it the way I wanted you to do it. You didn't do it the way I thought it should be done. Recognize that God is God. He divided the waters. He sent the people into the wilderness. He led them. He fed them. He watered them. He sustained them. He met all their needs. And yet there was a a refusal to obey. When they left the land of Egypt, I am going to give you the promised land that was promised to your forebear, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give you the land of promise. The land that your ancestors came from, they had been there as pilgrims. They had come from even further east than that. The land was promised. God told Abraham, look to the north, the south, the east, and the west, and all the land you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. A land of promise. Look down at verse 15, the end of it. It says that they should go and possess the land which thou hadst sworn unto give them. But it says in verse 16, but they and our fathers dealt proudly and hard their necks and heart and hearkened not to the commandments. They refused to obey. Neither were they mindful of thy wonders. They didn't look back and remember what God had done in the land of Egypt. They didn't remember the parting of the Red Sea. They didn't think of what they, what they received day by day and what they saw day by day. They ignored these things and they refused to obey. They weren't mindful. And in the rebellion, appointed a captain to return to Mount. Let's go back to Egypt. We were better off in Egypt. If we go into this promised land, we will be slaughtered. Our children will be will be killed or or enslaved. Remember the the, the kids' song: Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. Some of you have seen this before. Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. What do you think they saw in Canaan? Ten were bad and two were good. Some saw giants, big and tall. Some saw grapes with clusters long. Some saw God was in it all. But ten were bad and two were good. The report of the spies came back. The tens, they all said, "It's a wonderful land. It's a land that truly flows with milk and honey." But the ten said, there are giants over there, there are giant cities, they have huge walls, we cannot do this. And there were two, Caleb and Joshua, that remembered what God had had done before. They had seen all that God had done, and they knew what God had promised. And they said, let's go up and do it, let's take it. God has said, we can do this, God has promised this to us, let's go. And what was the outcry, what was the the response of the nation? They believed the, the ten bad. 
And so God said, okay, if you won't believe, if you won't trust me, you trust me for manna, you trust me to walk through the Red Sea, you trust me to wander through the wilderness, but you don't promise, you don't trust me to go into the, into the land of promise. So instead, you guys are going to wander around in this wilderness for 40 years until this generation, this generation of rebels dies. And your children, that you said were going to be either slaughtered or enslaved, they will go up and they will inherit the land. And it says the people cried. And the next day, they got on their swords and they got on their shields and they got on their helmets and they said, we're ready to go up and conquer. But God said, no, 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 no. You didn't believe me. So now you're going to wander. I will not, if you go up, I will not be with you. And they went, okay, you won't go when I tell you to. And now I've said, don't go. And now you're going to go. See, this is the whole issue of the human condition. We in our very nature are rebels. They rather preferred slavery. It's better than dying in battle. They thought that God would not, God could not keep his word. You know, the gods of the, the Egyptians were capricious. Now, I guess these are gods of human imagination. People make gods after our own imaginations. And so the gods of the Egyptians were, were, were perceived to be capricious gods, gods that are constantly changing their minds, gods that couldn't be depended on. And so they assumed that the God of Israel... The God who is, the God who does things, the God who is always faithful, the God who has demonstrated his faithfulness would be like the Egyptian gods. The God is not willing or that God is not able. You know, these circumstances are just beyond God's ability to cope with. And sometimes we think that way. Our enemies are stronger than our God. And yet uh, they saw the, the dead soldiers of the Egyptians on the, on the shores of the Dead Sea the next day. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 14, dealing, by the way, with this very promise, God said, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And so they rebelled. They refused to obey. Neither were they mindful of the wonders that thou didst among them. But it says at the end of verse 17, but thou art a, a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and forsook us them not. In spite of all of Israel's rebellion, God did not abandon them. All right? God made the promise. They come to Mount Sinai. And Moses comes and tells the children of Israel, okay, I'm going to go up and I'm going to get some commandments from God. God is going to offer you a covenant. And before Moses went up, this is an exodus, the children of Israel said, all that the Lord will say, we will do. Sight unseen. Moses goes up there. He gets the Ten Commandments and so forth. He comes back down. Moses declares what God has said. And after hearing, they still said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. We made a promise. We will swear to abide by this covenant that God is offering us. And Moses said, I will go back up to the mount. I will get some more commandments and I will let the Lord know what you have said. And he goes up, and he's gone for just over a month, and he comes. What happened when they were gone? Exodus 32. They made a golden calf. They made the golden calf. They said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. They refused to heed the promise. They made that molten calf. There in verse 18 it says that. And had wrought great provocations, attributing 
deity to an image, attributing power to this image. This is the God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And yet God continued to provide for them. Every time they mock God, every time they disrespect God, every time they disobey God, every time they turn their back on God, every time they demonstrate their unfaithfulness, and every time God demonstrates his faithfulness. The provision is there. Look in verse 19. Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. By the way, what would happen if God had stopped providing the manna? They'd they'd have died of starvation very quickly. What would happen if God had stopped providing them supernaturally with water? Within a week, everyone would have died. God continued to supply. The pillar of cloud departed not from them by day to lead them by the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them the light and the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also them, also thy good spirit to instruct them. And withholdest not thy manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. And yet, forty days, forty years rather, verse 21, didst thou sustain them in the wilderness, so they lacked nothing, and their clothes waxed not old, and their feet swelled not. Boy, that'd be a nice thing to have. What did God do? He gave them exactly what he promised. Not what they deserve, but what he promised. And we need to recognize that in our own day, this is the way that God always operates. God cannot lie. God is bound by his own character. When God makes a promise, he must fulfill it. And when God says that he will do something, he will do it. Sometimes, once in a while, there's a contingency that God puts in the promise. But most of the time, God says, I will do this. And when God says that he will do this, he will. God said that whoever believes in in the Son should have everlasting life. But I don't deserve it, and I I do this, and I do this, and I've said yes, but God has said that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. My everlasting life is not dependent on my performance. It is not dependent on my faithfulness. It's dependent on God's faithfulness. The promise for Israel to go into the promised land, that 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 would be their inheritance, is based on the promise of God. And ultimately, it will be fulfilled that they were, that the Lord will be king over them. It is promised in the new covenant there in Jeremiah. That God has promised forgiveness and that they will have forgiveness of sins and that God will be their king and they will be in the land. God has promised that. It's not dependent on Israel. It's not dependent on God's people. It's dependent on the promise of God and the faithfulness of God. Our standing with God is based not on my performance, but on the faithfulness of God. God instructed them. God still met their needs. The resources would would be there. And look in verse 22. Moreover, again, the very thing that they were afraid of, that they would not succeed, that it would not happen, when God sent them into the land of promise, when they finally went in, 40 years later, the rebellious generation had died off except for Caleb and Joshua. Moreover, thou gavest them kingdoms and nations, and didst divide them into corners so that they possessed the land of Sion and the land of the king of Heshbon and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Their children also multiplied as the stars that were in heaven and broughtest them into the land concerning which thou had promised to their fathers that they should go in and possess it. 
So the children went in and possessed the land, and they subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands, and their kings, and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. Now here's the question. Why did all this happen? And why will God continue to fulfill all of his promises? Why will God do the, fulfill the promises that he's made to you and me? Why has God done all these things? Does God owe me, does God owe you anything? No, God owes us nothing. God owes me nothing. Does God give me this because I deserve it? No. I deserve nothing. God owes me nothing. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 6, it says, Because our wickedness is thought, word, and deed, it says, The wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. God owes me nothing other than judgment. But thankfully, it's not about me, rather. It's about God. In just a little bit, we're going to be doing the Lord's Supper here. And I want you to to turn to Jeremiah. This... I believe, is the most important passage in your Old Testament. We have a number of covenants in your Old Testament. We deal with the covenant that God made with Noah and applies to us today in Genesis chapters 8 and 9. We have the promise that God, the covenant that God made with with Abraham there in Genesis chapter 12. We have the covenant that God made with the children of Israel there at Mount Sinai in, in Exodus chapter 20. We have the the covenant that God made with David in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And we have a promise that God made, a covenant that God has made. All the others are dealing with the, the propagation of the people and dealing with the kingdom and the land. But in order for God to do that, there's, a, there's an overriding thing that needs to be dealt with. I mentioned that the preeminent trait, the, the preeminent attribute of God in all the Bible especially in the Old Testament, is God's holiness. God is just and must punish sin. And if God is going to have a relationship with humanity because of our fallen condition, because of our rebellion against him, the whole issue of sin needs to be dealt with. And a promise was made, again, here in Jeremiah chapter 31. Look at verse 31. And again, primarily dealing with Israel, but there is a a section of this that applies to all of humanity, and I'll mention that in just a moment. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31, we deal with the new covenant. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, though I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. And this is dealing with the fact that all the Lord has said we will do. Ten commandments and so forth. All the Lord has said we will do. And then we have the golden calf incident immediately following. Which covenant they, they, uh, they broke. It says in verse 33, but this will be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I'll put my law in their inward parts. And write it in their hearts. In other words, there will be obedience, there will be compliance, there will be, it will be part of the very nature of their being. And will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them. Here's the key thing, this is the, this is the most important part of the whole thing, this last phrase. For I will forgive their iniquity, 
and remember their sin no more. God is a God of holiness. God is a God of justice. God cannot, and some of we've been through this, God cannot pat you on the head like the benevolent grandfather, like my grandpa did with me one time when I got in really big trouble and we kind of hid something from my dad. Dad, if you're listening, I'll tell you about it later. God can't do that. As much as I may appreciate what my grandfather did, God can't do that. God is just. He can't brush aside sin. He can't say, well, that's okay. We'll let it go this time. Justice must be satisfied. In the upper room, when Jesus is meeting with the disciples, right before the betrayal, right before the arrest, right before the crucifixion, as he's doing the the Last Supper, he holds up the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This was a symbol of the shed blood, just as we will be doing this. This is a, a symbol of his shed blood, of his broken body. Why was the crucifixion necessary? Why is this so important? Why, why did this have to happen? Because God's justice had to be satisfied. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I am perishing. I am going to suffer ultimately from the consequences of my sin. I will die. And the Bible says, and whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. I will suffer for eternity because of the consequences of my sin. Because I lie. Because I cheat. Because I steal. Because I'm unfaithful. Because I can't keep my word. And God must punish sin. But if I am to have forgiveness, which is also available, talked about in the scripture, then God's justice must be satisfied. Christ paid the penalty that was my due. He suffered in my stead. He paid that that penalty. How is that possible? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Christ shed his blood. This is just a symbol of the reality. This does not save you. What Christ did 2,000 years ago, that saves you. He suffered what you need, what you and I both need to suffer, or would, would suffer on our own. But instead, Christ bore the penalty for me so that this last part can be fulfilled. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. God can't just arbitrarily say, well, I'm going to forgive you. His justice has to be satisfied. This was pictured in the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. And it's remembered today in the churches by the Lord's Supper. The Old Testament sacrifices never took away sin. The book of Hebrews says that. It was simply a picture of what was going to happen. And we look back at what Christ has done in the Lord's Supper. What took away sin? The sacrifice of Christ itself. That one event, the crucifixion, bore the penalty of sin. When Jesus said, it is finished... The last thing he said on the cross, that can be just as easily translated, paid in full. The sacrifice of Christ, the death of Christ, the sufferings of the Savior on the cross, paid the penalty of sin, satisfied the justice of God, so that God can now forgive. His justice has been satisfied. The new covenant was inaugurated and made possible by the blood of Christ. 
His shed blood enables us to have forgiveness. That's what this is all about. The new covenant was inaugurated, made possible by the shed blood of Christ. Aren't we glad that our salvation is not dependent on ourselves? Aren't we thankful that it isn't because I do something or I have to measure up to a particular standard because I never will? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We miss the mark. We fail to measure up to the standard that God has given. We are an unholy people. We are ever unfaithful. But God is faithful. And thankfully, it's dependent on him. Because God always, always, always keeps his word. Because God is gracious and God is merciful. And because God is always faithful. We can have forgiveness of sins. We can have a right relationship of God. Because God promised. And whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I can have forgiveness of sins because of Jesus Christ. I can have a relationship with God because God promised. And God himself in the person of Jesus Christ paid the penalty on my behalf. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what Christ has done. Thank you for the sacrifice that makes salvation possible. Father, as we partake of the Lord's Supper today, it is to remember what you have done. It does not make us Christians. It does not make us better Christians. It is to remember what allows us to become your children. And what Christ did is put to our account. We become your children. We can have forgiveness simply by believing, by faith, accepting what you have done on our behalf. And so, Father, thank you. You've done it all. You are a faithful, gracious, merciful God. And, Father, in spite of all of our failings, we are in need of your mercy. We are in need of your grace. And, Father, thank you that you provide it in the person of Christ. And if there's somebody here today that never trusted Christ, maybe today this is the first time they've heard the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for them. Father, may today be that day of salvation. Do a work in our hearts and lives today. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about faith in Jesus Christ or more about our ministry, please visit www.gracebaptistpuyallup.org. Until next time, may you walk worthy of the Lord.